Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense, Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. We formed this podcast and website, uh, Jersey Dispatch, to celebrate great competitors that wore numbers as they performed in sports. And auto racing is one that uh, definitely has some numbers on her. So when I got the opportunity from Joe Ziemba to talk to one of his relatives about IndyCar racing, I jumped at the chance. Tim Coffeen and his Indy story are coming up for you in just a moment. My name's Darren Hayes, and I know you've heard me on the Pigskin Dispatch talking about football history for years. Well, now I'm on a new mission, a quest to find sports history in other sports as well as football by learning through the jerseys and the apparel and the gear that the players wore and the franchises supplied their teams. It's an educational trip, and I'm taking you with me day by day, player by player, uniform by uniform, the Sports Jersey Dispatch. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my sports friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Sports Jersey Dispatch, the year sports history by the numbers of uniforms and gear of the top competitors. And we have a real special event today that we're going to get to talk to uh, a legend in a, an era that we haven't really covered yet, and that's auto racing. But to help me out with that, uh, we have uh, the gentleman that's uh, connected me with our guest today. It's an old friend from Pigskin Dispatch, uh, Joe Ziemba. Joe, uh, welcome back to the Pigpen. Darren, thanks so much for having me. Of course, it's always an honor to hit the top of the mountain in terms of sports podcasting, being here in the pig pen. So thank you very much. Well, that's very kind. I'm, I'm sure you probably meant the valley of uh, the depths here. But that's, that's, that's fine, too. Hey, now, Joe, you contacted me recently uh, and you said you had a, a relative that has a very special connection to auto racing that uh, we, you thought would be a great guest uh, to come on here and you, you hooked us up here. Maybe uh, you could introduce him and we'll bring him in. Oh, thank you, Darren. Yeah. It's been my honor and privilege to have my little cousin, Tim Coffeen with us tonight. Never most of my adult life, Tim has been involved in IndyCar racing. In fact, I've compared him to being a member of the, New York Yankees, his uh, Newman Haas IndyCar team won seven championships. He's got the rings to prove them. Uh, he's been kind enough over the years to bring me into his inner circle at races and time trials and uh, to share some of his thoughts and, and laughter about some of the experiences he had. And so, Darren, the reason I, I contacted you was you did such a great job of covering all the different types of sports and sporting events. But nowhere in podcasting have I been able to find anything on IndyCar racing. And here's a guy who lived the life. And I, I told Tim earlier, I said, when I do football podcasts or speak, I've got to research that stuff because I wasn't there. You know, most of my interviews are with guys who are no longer with us, unfortunately. Uh, Tim had the ability and, of course, the great experience to live that life. And so he's just a uh, quite a reserve of stories. And has always taken us, like I said, to the in, inner workings of IndyCar racing uh, to learn more about it. So I thought he'd be a great fit for you. And thank you so much for having not only him, but also myself on tonight, Darren. Thank you. Well, it's quite my pleasure. So I guess so. without further ado, uh, Tim Coffeen, welcome to the pig pen. Thank you, Darren. Thanks very much for having me. And thanks, Joe, for making this possible. Well, this is a truly a pleasure because I am, I'm like admitted before we came on the air, I am a very much a, a novice at uh, IndyCar. I guess before we get started, maybe tell a little bit about your, your career in IndyCar. Well, I'm originally, Joe and I are from Chicago. Uh, my dad got transferred to Indianapolis in 19, in the fall of 57. And uh, so I was in Indianapolis as a young kid in kindergarten. And uh, in May of 1958, the whole neighborhood was, my mother had a saying, she said she thought that during the month of May in Indianapolis, 
that uh, the American flag was replaced by the checkered flag in Indianapolis because that's all you saw hanging. <laughs> People would put flags in their driveways, hang them from their uh, flagpoles. Uh, schools had checkered flags flapping. So uh, I got an inter- introduced to uh, racing at a very young age. Uh, about 1960, my dad took me to the speedway, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. In fact, my, Joe was with me. Our dads took us out there together. And uh, it was just intoxicating to uh, be at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, it's a big two-and-a-half-mile oval, uh, greatest r- race circuit in the world. And it, it just took over the whole community for the month of May. I also grew up down the street from the Indiana State Fairgrounds, uh, three blocks away. And they had a race there in September that was the second highest paying race in the world next to the 500 on the mile dirt track, which was also a championship race. And great drivers like A.J. Foyt, Parnelli Jones, Allens, or Jimmy Bryan were all victors in that race. And that was in my neighborhood. And uh, I could actually go over there and sneak through the hole we cut in the fence to sneak in the state fair the week before (laughs) and uh, see the racing as a kid. And that's what really... Uh, and I grew up down the street from a group of brothers that uh, we put lawnmower engines on ironing boards and, and, and <laughs> built cars as kids, uh, raced bicycles. Racing was, uh, it was my first love as a kid and it became a life. Wow. Now, how did you get involved in the actual racing then? I, I can see you have a, quite a bit of a fandom for it, but how, how exactly did you get involved in, in being out on the, the, the pit crews? Well, when I was in high school, uh, I went to high school at 16th Meridian in Indianapolis. And the Speedway is about four miles west of there on 16th Street. So when I got out of school, I had to hitchhike over to the Speedway every day, and I'd hang out there. They tested tires in the spring and the fall, and I would be sitting out in the Grandstand E outside of Turn 1. Um, And I, I started after, in 1968, uh, after my sophomore year in high school, they did a movie called, filmed the movie called Winning. Uh, and it starred Paul Newman and Robert Wagner. Well, I would hitchhike out there every day and there wasn't any gate guards anymore to guard the garage area. And I got in and started hanging around the garages. And a guy grabbed me one day and he said, hey kid, I need some help pushing this car. And, uh, and when I was 15 years old, I didn't even have a driver's license. I was hitchhiking out there every day and hitchhiking home at night. And uh, a guy put me on uh, helping him during the movie. And when the movie was over, in those days, people would come back to Indianapolis and they would headquarter their teams in the garage area for the entire year, uh, the entire summer, I should say. Uh, most of the races were in the Midwest, man. And uh, I, from the people I had met making that movie, one of the guys put me to work cleaning parts on his IndyCar for the rest of the summer. And uh, then after my junior year in high school, a guy picked me up and called me and asked me if I would come and help him on an IndyCar team for, during the summer. So when I was in high school, I was already in the garage area and, and helping out and learning. I wasn't a mechanic, per se. In those days, they called it being a gopher or a stooge. But I was in the garage area when I was a kid. So I was very, very fortunate. And it just, uh, it intoxicated me. It became my life. I knew what I wanted to do when I was that age. Wow. So, so you started out, uh, pushing, pushing a car, hitchhiking there to push a car, cleaning parts, and then you're turning wrenches on, on the the big machines there. That's, that's pretty impressive. That's pretty well the way it turned out. Yes. Hey, hey, Tim, one of my favorite stories was, and, and Tim's mother, unfortunately was widowed when he was in high school. And the fact that he had come one day and he was going out to the racetrack, how did your mom react when she knew you were involved in racing and that might be your vocation in life? Um, well, I don't think she was very pleased. <laughs> uh, you know, she, she thought I would be better being in school and, and paying attention, but, uh, the exact story, Joe, about it escapes me at the moment. If there was something that happened that I did, that <laughs> yeah, I was wondering. I remember you saying some that she uh, equalized racing with being a circus or something. And then... oh, yeah, my mother was a nurse, and uh, she would 
she was very accomplished. She had a master's degree in, in uh, hospital administration, and she was an RN. And she was widowed at a young age and raised six kids, of which I was the oldest. And she looked to me, I guess, not I guess, she looked at me uh, to show some leadership and responsibility. Well, I wanted to hang around these racetracks, and she didn't think too highly of that. She thought I should be concentrating on my studies. Well, um, she was a, during the state fair, she would help around the state fair and, and uh, with the Red Cross. And she saw a lot of these uh, carnies come in uh, with different afflictions, different little diseases or illnesses. And uh, so she kept telling me that uh, I'll never forget when I, she told me if I, if I kept hanging around race cars that I was going to, you know, I was going to end up being a carny. So uh, 20 years later, I'm working on an IndyCar team at Phoenix and I got her passes to the race and she come out and she was standing on the front straightaway with our IndyCar just before the start of the race. And I thought she'd be pretty impressed. And she said to me, she looked around and she said, congratulations, Tim, you finally made it to the big time. Where's the Ferris wheel at? And I said, <laughs> I just couldn't do anything right. <laughs> yeah, what, what can you say to your, your mom, right? No, <laughs> mom's always that's right. That's it. And mom's <laughs> always right. Now, Tim, I have a question, you know, and, and uh, please excuse my uh, naiveness here, but what is the difference exactly between an India car and like a formula racing car that you see in Europe? Uh, they're similar in the fact that uh, they're open wheel. You would call an open cockpit open. The wheels are not covered by fenders like a stock car. Um, they're both rear engine or uh, pretty high technology cars. Um, Formula One is the ultimate technology in the world of, of, of automobiles. They are, they are the, the greatest when it comes to advanced technology. But IndyCar is also a high tech race car. Uh, but it's basically an open wheel car. Um, the guy's exposed in the car. Um, the last several years, they've, they've gone to try and help the driver. The Formula One cars have what they call a halo over the top of the driver. And the Indy car uh, come up with a bigger windscreen that's actually above the driver's uh, head to keep from anything getting in the cockpit with him. But they're still open wheel cars and they're open cockpit cars. So the driver's sitting out in the breeze. He's not sitting with a roof over his head. And uh, that's a, it takes a lot of guts to drive an open wheel car. You know, in Indianapolis, uh, the track record there, um, they slowed the cars down a little bit. They're still qualifying over 230 miles an hour. Wow. But the track record in Indianapolis, I believe, is 237 miles an hour for one lap. So, and that's in an open wheel, open cockpit car. So those guys are, they're pretty brave at what they do. <laughs> now, now, have you had the opportunity to, to drive one of these machines? I'm, well, I've been able to drive the, an older Indy car back in the day, like the front engine roadsters from the 60s. A uh, good friend of mine from San Francisco, Phil Riley owns A.J. Foyt's 1960 Seal Fast Roadster. It was a Quinn Epperly built. It's a beautiful race car. And he's, I've probably driven it five times around the speedway. So I got to feel the sensation. I wasn't running wheel to wheel with other cars like in the race, but I got to sink my leg in it in the straightaways. And uh, got, I raced myself in sprint cars on dirt tracks and midgets. I rode midgets somewhat, which is a smaller open wheel car. But yeah, I have gone around the speedway in an older style, a historic Indy car. Yes. And, and how how fast did you end up going in one of those older cars? Well, like I said, I didn't. I wasn't going to crash the car, so I didn't go into the corners. I didn't go berserk, but I I legged her down the straightaway, and I estimate I was probably running 165 down the straightaways, sure. according wow. to the tachometer. Wow, that's mm -hmm. unfathomable to me. You know, I'm. <laughs> I get up to 75, I get nervous in the car. <laughs> I can't well, imagine. Darren, I, one thing that became quite obvious to me, you come off the corner and like I said, I didn't, I wasn't going to crash this thing in the corner. So I, when you get on the straightaway and you sink your leg in that thing and the car just kind of raises up, it gets really light and floats and those fence posts on the outside get real close together in a hurry. So it's quite <laughs> a thrill. I'll bet. Now, uh, you, the, as Joe said at the beginning, you uh, were part of seven championships in, in IndyCar. 
what uh, maybe describe what that feeling is and what, what uh, part you played in, in those. Well, Newman Haas Racing, I worked there from 1989 to, uh, to uh, through the 2011 seasons. I worked there 23 years. And the team was uh, started by Carl Haas and his partner was, was Paul Newman. And uh, they went together at the end of the 82 season. Uh, Carl went to Paul and asked him if he wanted to be his partner in an IndyCar team. And Paul's quote was, not a chance in hell. And Carl said, what if I was going to tell you our driver would be Mario Andretti? And Paul said, where do you want to meet? So they came together in 82. And they raced for uh, until I came there in 89. Later on, they'd already been racing for six seasons when I came there. But I, I worked through the 2011 season. And I went to work there when Michael Andretti came to drive there with his father. It, Newman Haas was a one-car team for Mario from 1983 through 88. And it became the father-son team, the two-car team in 1989 when I came there. And I worked with Michael for 10 years at Newman Haas. So before he moved over to uh to start his own team so uh i worked with them nigel mansell came to drive when michael went uh two years uh he drove in formula one for mclaren in 1993 and nigel was the reigning world champion in formula one and michael quit to go to formula uh race in formula one Nigel was unhappy with his Formula One team after, uh, after his championship. And our boss got on a plane, went to England and knocked on Nigel's door and said, I got an IndyCar team and I heard you're unhappy with yours. Why don't you come over and drive and run our series? And Nigel did it. And he won the championship in 93. And Michael had won the championship in 91. Uh, it was interesting about Nigel when he clinched the championship in October of 1993 at Nazareth Speedway. Uh, the Formula One championship had not been decided yet. And Nigel, so that meant that Nigel was not only the IndyCar champion, the world champion, because we did race all over the world. Uh, he was also the reigning Formula One champion. So he was the IndyCar and the Formula One champion at the same time. So I thought that was quite an accomplishment. Yeah, probably not too many people can say they had that, uh, both those uh, championships at one time, I'm sure. It's never happened before or since. Wow. As impressive. Now, one interesting thing, uh, you know, this is a, a, a podcast and a, a website about numbers to describe uh, the sports history and to learn. And I, I'm here to learn. And you said something uh, pretty interesting to me about how, uh, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with how NASCAR is numbered. And uh, like you said, you know, Dale Earnhardt's and Jeff Gordon's, you know, their numbers, they, they pretty much stick to their numbers, their entire careers. But uh, IndyCar is a little bit different. And perhaps maybe you could share that with uh, myself and the audience and Joe on how IndyCar uh, determines their numbers of their drivers. Sure. Uh, IndyCar numbers traditionally have always been uh, given by, assigned by or you, the, the championship of the previous season, where you finish in the point standings. Um, there was a points awarded for each race you run. And at the end of the year, there's a, there's a champion that has accumulated the next points, uh, the most points, sorry, and then second point, uh, place in the standings and third and so on. And uh, it was always the right of the person or the team that had won the championship to be number one, uh, finished second in the points, she'd be number two. Uh, and that's, that's the way IndyCar racing was. Uh, some teams always kept the same numbers. Uh, I worked at Patrick Racing in the 80s. And Mr. Patrick preferred to keep number 20, number 40, and number 60 on his three cars. But the, traditionally, IndyCar has assigned the numbers by the way the championship uh, finished the previous season. Okay, now, so did your, your drivers, that uh, the championship teams you were on, did they take the, the number one the next season? Michael Andretti was number one in 92. Nigel was number one in 94. Yes, so uh, we took the number... Uh, it proudly took it. I mean, it's it's quite an honor to look and look at your race car that you, you know, you put your life into that car and you're looking and it says that you've accomplished something. It's a good feeling and it's hard earned. Um, the championship, uh, IndyCar racing is such a diverse series. It's not just running ovals or road courses. You run all kinds of tracks. You run big two mile, two and a half mile track like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We used to run 
uh, a flat mile track in Milwaukee. Uh, Nazareth Speedway was a little bit smaller than a mile. Um, you run Ontario, California, which is a carbon copy of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, two and a half miles. Then you have your different road courses, uh, traditional road courses, natural circuits like Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin is a, is a little over four miles and that winds through the hills and, and uh, through the woods of Wisconsin. Um, Laguna Seca, California is another natural road circuit. And then you have your street courses like Long Beach where they are temporary circuits. So it's a very diverse series. Um, and you win a championship in IndyCar racing. Uh, it's a hard because all that you can't be have a perfect setup for every track you go to all year. You can have a great team and a great driver, but there's always going to be places where you're you struggle a little bit. So to win a championship in a diverse series like that is uh, it's not, it always considered a quite an accomplishment. Now, now, what would you say is is your favorite uh, kind of track to to? Uh, run. I mean, your, your drivers, is it the road course? Is it the big two and a half mile ovals? Is it the smaller courses? What, what's your favorite one to, to I guess, to, to work as a, a team and maybe also to, to watch? Maybe they're two different things. Well, Darren, I'd be quite honest with you. As, as younger, I grew up in Indiana, uh, went to a lot of the uh, sprint car and midget races, the dirt tracks. I told you I grew up down the street from the state fairgrounds, which is a mile clay oval. I love dirt track racing, uh, but as I got older and I worked, and especially when I was at Newman Haas, you were working with Mario Andretti and Michael Andretti and Nigel Mansell, these great road racers, I grew to have a tremendous respect for road racing. Road racing is a very physical sport. Um, you're, it's, the cars are very small. The driver's in there. He's greatly confined in the car. He's sitting in between an oil radiator uh, on his right side and a water radiator on his left side. Uh, the fuel cell is behind the guy um, and the engine's bolted to the back of the fuel cell. There's a tremendous amount of heat in one of those cars. Indy cars do not have power steering. The only high-tech race cars in the world really that don't. And uh, it's a very, road racing is very, very physical. Those, you don't see any fat road racers. And uh, I, but I, I loved oval racing and I'm not copping out, but I really, like I said, if you win an IndyCar championship, um, it, it's just, it's a real accomplishment because you got to run a really diverse bunch of circuits, uh, ovals and road courses to be a champion. So um, I, I, I love them all. I mean, it's an honor to go to the Speedway in May because that's the greatest uh, race course in the world. There's nothing even close to it. I, yet, I still get butterflies every time I go through the gate at that place, but um, I, I loved I loved going to all the races. I, it was I learned a lot about it as I as my career went on. But I didn't like road racing as as a kid because I was a dirt track racer and I was kind of thought those guys weren't as as tough. But boy, I sure found out a lot different than that. Yeah, so as a kid, you liked to just have the left turns. You didn't like the right turns mixed <laughs> in there, right? <laughs> no, well, not saying I didn't like. I just didn't like them as much. And, uh, you know, dirt track racing is, was a real passion of mine. I, I did it myself. I raced sprint cars on dirt tracks and, uh, it's the most spectacular racing I think in the world sprint car racing, open wheel sprint cars are really, they're spectacular to watch. Um, they'll put the, they'll make the hair on your neck, back of your neck stand up there. That's where all the old IndyCar guys came from Floyd, Parnelli Jones and, and, uh, that Mario, those guys all, all grew up in cut their teeth racing sprint cars to get to the ovals. But a lot of those guys then developed into great road racers too. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. Uh, Joe, do you have, uh, I've been cutting you out here. Do you have some more oh, questions for Tim? No. Uh, I, I'm just enjoying him reminiscing stuff I've never heard before. But Tim, could you uh, maybe explain a little bit who's involved in a racing team? We have one driver, of course. We see the guys hop over the wall, but what's involved in IndyCar racing teams? Well, teams are set up, uh, start off with, you have to have an owner to foot the bills. And then you have, uh, you got a team manager who oversees the operation for the owner. And he's responsible basically for the engineering staff. Now IndyCar has massive engineering staffs. Um, they have junior engineers, uh, they have data acquisition people. Uh, and then you go to the mechanical side. 
Um, you have chief mechanic, and usually for each driver, a lot of teams, a lot of teams have more than one driver. So, but each team for each driver has a chief mechanic, and they'll have a, a race car for each race and a spare car. So you got a crew, and most generally, the way Indy cars teams are set up, you'll have a guy that works at the front of the car that does all the front suspension assembly. Uh, does the steering, the brakes, all of that in the front of the car. And then you'll have a guy that does all the rear suspension, um, which is these cars are complex, a lot of moving parts. Uh, the turbocharger for the Indy cars are in the back. Um, and then you'll have a gearbox guy who is responsible for the transmission, which is a huge responsibility. So you've got numerous people that are assigned to and you, the chief mechanic is over the mechanical end of the car. He's responsible for uh, the assembly of the cars and the parts. And, and that was my job the last several years of my career. But, um, you know, the team is, it's a massive, like at Newman Haas, we ran two drivers most the whole time I was there. And we would go to the races with 30, 35 people would fly to the races and, uh, you know, you got a hospitality center when you get there with people that take care of that. And uh, you got semi drivers. Uh, you got to have truck. You got to have transporters. Most teams, if you have two cars, you'll have at least three semis because you got to have a truck for the engineering staff and the spares and everything. So IndyCar racing is a big investment. And uh, there's a, a lot of lot more than meets the eye uh, to getting those cars ready to go to the track. Uh, Tim, how long does it take uh, to to get a car ready for a race? So let's say you know the Indy 500 this May. When do they start working on that that car and, and that engine for that car? Well, it's interesting, Darren, because um, it's changed now. They run a road race and they built a, a road course inside the Indianapolis Motor Speedway about 2000 to accommodate Formula One. Well, that race doesn't happen anymore. But anyway, IndyCar now starts off the month of May by running the wrong way down the front straightaway, I still call it, <laughs> uh, and run this road course through the infield. And you asked me a question about how long does it take? Well, they run that road course on Saturday, and then they turn those cars around in one day there in the Speedway garages, and they're on that oval the next week running. And an oval setup to a road course setup is completely different. I mean, you got different suspension, um, the steering's different, everything on the car, basically. It may look the same from the outside. The wings are going to be different because uh, you're running over 230 miles an hour on the oval and the road course, you might average 115. So the aerodynamics are different, but there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into it that doesn't meet the eye. The guys that do the work on those things are, and the time constraints now those mechanics are under. Uh, when I did it several years ago, uh, the garage area was open 24-7. You could show up in the middle of the night. I mean, if you crashed a car or had some mechanical difficulties, you could work as long as you want to. But nowadays, the garage area opens at 8 in the morning and it closes at 8 at night. And there's a tremendous amount of pressure on those guys to perform, the guys that actually do the work on the car. So there's a lot that goes into it. And they turn a car around in the blink of an eye. And it's a tremendous amount of work. And it's not just changing parts. And then you got to change the setup on the car. You got to put it on the scale pad. And you got to make, you know, the ride highs, the cambers, the toes, all the technical stuff to accommodate, you know, an oval from a road course. So they do a, a lot of, a lot of work. Like I said, that doesn't meet the eye before it even gets on the track for the speedway for the so 500. So it's, it's literally the same car that, that runs a road race as it is on the big oval. They, they, Absolutely. It's, just... it's the same, it's the same chassis um, and probably and more than likely the same engine because engines now, or you run them in the old days, we changed engines like popcorn. And nowadays you're, you got to run them so many miles, the manufacturers uh, that's, it's part of the, the laws of the rules of the series. But yeah, it, it's it's all different from road course to oval. I mean, it may, like I said, with the exception, you can see the wings are different, but inside the car, the transmission, uh, all the gears in the thing, um, the wheel, everything on the suspension is, is a lot different. Um, the setup on the car is tremendously different. The steering's different. Um, it's a lot of work. And so it, 
and they look the same in a lot of ways, but there's a lot that doesn't meet the eye that takes time to do and do it right. And uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, I'll bet. Now I have some, some questions on race day now. Okay. So you, you've been in the pits. I've never been, I know Joe's, you said Joe's had some experience seeing what's going on in the pits. What happens uh, during a pit stop uh, for an Indy car? Let's just say it's a normal pit stop, but we're changing tires out. What, what, what kind of activities are going on, I guess, right before the driver comes in and what happens when he, when he does bring the car in? Well, there's basically what in my career, there's two kinds of pit stops. Those are under that are coming when you come in under green, like when you're racing at racing speed and when there's a yellow flag and they've changed the rules 20, 30 years ago. Everybody comes in together now during a yellow nose to tail, which can be mayhem. <laughs> but uh, I, I changed all four tires outside, inside. I fueled the cars. I did the air jack. I had a lot of experience over the wall. I did my first pit stop when I was 21 in 1974, and I did my last one in 2011. So, um, But when a car comes in, uh, he comes to a stop in the pits. Uh, the air jack guy will jack the car up. It'll come up off the ground. The guys change the, all four tires. The fueler plugs in. Be an air, the air jack is the back of the car now. Um, and what, the way they do a pit stop now, the tire guys are, are – usually the first to get done before the fuel is in the car. So they'll pop the air jack when the, they get the signal to let the all four guys are done with the tires. And then they wait, the, the outside front guy who is the uh, captain, I would, it's not the real term, but I would say he's in charge of the pits. He's got his, he's got his, he's out front of the car. He sees the driver. He sees the fueler. He sees what's coming at him. Yeah, that's people don't think about the traffic that's coming up behind you uh, when, when you know when you're want to want to leave your pit when you're done you got to have a guy signal you to leave and uh, there's just so much that goes on and it's changed a lot because when I did it I started doing it those things held 75 gallons of fuel which took forever to fuel and then they cut it to 40 and now I believe it's down to 16 so those tire changers today are under unbelievable pressure to finish in a hurry uh, because it only takes with a four inch circumference hose, gravity flow hose, uh, that fuel flows in that car pretty quickly. So there's a lot of pressure on these guys to not make a mistake. It's easy to drop a nut uh, and all kinds of mayhem can break loose. If one guy makes a mistake, it usually multiplies where there's two guys that mess up. It's, it's, it's a team effort, and uh, I always – I was involved in some not-so-pleasant situations out over the wall. Uh, it's very dangerous, but to me, it was always my reward. For all the hard work you do uh, on the car, it was always exciting for me to get to get over the wall in Indianapolis or any, any track you went to because you're actually influencing your, your car's on time, you know, on time, what it, what it is on the track. Like for instance, you can race behind somebody for 20 laps and try and get around that car and finally get around that guy. And that took 20 laps to do that. You come in the pits and have a bad pit stop or a slower pit stop than your competitor. And all of a sudden you're not just behind that guy again, you're behind three or four more guys that you got to try and get back around. So the, there's an old saying that races are won and lost in the pits and the pits are so critical and crucial. Um, uh, and like I said, there, there's way more into a pit stop than meets the eye. Uh, I'll bet now. Okay. I, I I'm sure that the tires of IndyCar held on like, uh, you know, my, uh, Chevy out in the garage where I have, you know, five lug nuts to take the tire off. How, how are the, the tires attached on there? Uh, is it, it's not a regular lug nut. I take it. No, it's a, it's a hexagonal shaped nut. And, uh, it's about two and I don't know, two and three quarters, it's just one nut. It's a hex nut. The air guns they use hooked to a nitrogen bottle. Uh, the pressure on those guns that they use, they put a, the socket, the hexagonal socket on the nut and nail that throttle, that button on that gun. And it's like they can run close to 400 pounds of air pressure. So that gun 
basically just rips that nut off those threads. It spins it off in a hurry. And that's where some of the mayhem can come in sometimes because those nuts, I've had them come out of the socket and they just don't stop. I mean, they're spinning thousand RPM. They're just going to take off and go down the pit lane. That's why you wear a spare nut on your belt. So if that happens, you got to reach on, you got to change the tire and then reach on your belt, take the spare nut off, thread it on by hand and then get your gun and go back on. And I mean, you see it happen a lot. And that's what I'm saying. The guy at the back of the car that's running the jack, when he sees the four guys get the tires done, they let the car down. There's just so much more to a pit stop than, than meets the eye. It's really, uh, when it's when it's right, I always said it was like, you could play orchestra music to it. But when it's not, <laughs> it can be pretty, it can be pretty hectic. How fast is a, is a good pit stop, Tim, in IndyCar? I know well, it's in now, terms of seconds. Well, now, Joe, um, I would say six seconds. Um, They only hold 16 gallons of fuel nowadays. Like I said, when I did it, it was 40 gallons. And you got to figure it's not like you pull in the gas station and you get a lever and you you open up that uh, that gas pump handle. These are gravity flow. There's no pressurized system here. So it's flowing, the tank's raised up above, it comes down into a four-inch OD hose, and, uh, and it flows into the car. Well, as the tank goes down, as the head, we used to call it the head, as the, they fill every tank before the race, they figure out what kind of mileage you're going to have to get, and they give you so many gallons of fuel in your tank. And if you make six or seven pit stops at Indy, and that fuel goes down in the tank, there's less head pressure at the top. There's less weight up there and the fuel flows slower. So it takes longer. But these guys, like I said, nowadays, or these cars don't hold that much fuel. They get better mileage than they used to. Uh, 16 gallons of fuel does not take long to go into a car. And those tire changers are under tremendous pressure to change tires in a hurry and be perfect about it and not make a mistake. So it's, it's a really, really demanding uh, those guys don't get enough credit. It's harder to do. Like I told you, I stopped doing it in 2011. These guys today are way more pressure than I was. I used to drop, I, not all the time, but it happened to me where I dropped a nut and I didn't have any, any trouble beating the fuel or getting the nut back on, on the hub and, and threading it back on there with a the gun. But nowadays that doesn't happen. And you'll see mistakes happen. A guy will drive away and a tire will come off because uh, there those guys are under a lot of pressure today. Tremendous amount of pressure. Now I, I'm sure to be that synchronized and to get down to six seconds, there has to be a lot of practice. Um, how, oh. how much practice time do you have uh, like in a, a week during race season? Well, the way that works, Darren, these guys that change these tires are athletes. Now um, every they they practice in the shop. A lot of them every day. We had Newman Haas. We didn't have we didn't start the car up with a uh, with an engine running, but we built an air ramp, and we had an older Indy car uh, that we used for pit stop practice. We put a plate on the back of the gearbox, and it had this big ram that had a piston in it. it was an air tank, and they released the valve, and it would launch the car across the back shop to us, and we would practice actually practice changing tires. I mean, all winter, uh, every day. And it's the same thing, you know, when you can at the track every day, you're practicing. If you watch IndyCars during practice, um, even if they're just at the track in a practice session, every time that car comes in the pit lane, those guys will change the tires when it comes to a stop before they go to work on the car. Um, so there's a, and also the physical, the physicality of it. Uh, Paul Newman, uh, Michael Andretti was one of the first guys when I worked with him. Uh, he wanted his guys going to the gym. Well, I'm not telling you I'm great or anything, but I, I started working out and running before uh, I was in pretty good shape and I took it pretty seriously. I, I wanted to win championships and, and I, I, I put my heart and soul in it. Well, a couple of years later, Michael Andretti was pretty emphatic with, he wanted his guys going to the gym and uh, Mr. Newman and Mr. Haas made it possible. We hired a trainer. Uh, he came to the shop, to the race shop. We, uh, we had a real uh, physical, uh, it was a physical therapy joint with a gym. They were professionals and they sent a physical therapist to our shop, a trainer. 
I mean, he watched us, what we did, practicing pit stops. And uh, he also watched us working on the cars because that's not easy. You know, you're on the ground laying on, the, on your back and bending over. And he designed a program for us. Uh, and we would go to the gym in the wintertime, three days a week. They let us out of the shop in the morning for an hour and a half, go to the gym, work out, and then come back to work. So, and that's carried over. I mean, IndyCar racing, all teams today, those guys are athletes. They either have a gym in their shop or they go somewhere during the week and work out together. Uh, it's just standard practice now. They're athletes. They're not just guys that work on cars. Wow, that, that's something I, I wasn't aware of. That's that's uh, quite a, a testament to, to all the whole racing team. Uh, to you know, you're not uh, you're not in the same light as what uh, you know many people think of. You know, the basketball and baseball and football stars. But if you're hitting the gym three times a week and and you're practicing, you know, all year long to do a, a task, you know, that's that's probably more than some of the other sports are doing. So that's that's really great. Well, like you said, Darren, if you watch these guys do these pit stops today and you're changing, you know, a right rear tire on one of those cars is 50 pounds. It, it's they're they're clumsy. They're not like a front tire is tall and skinny and it, people go, oh, that's lighter. Well, I mean, that darn thing. People don't think like say for a front tire changer on an Indy car, you got these wings in the front of the car next to the tires. The driver, a lot of times when he comes for a pit stop, they hand him a drink bottle and he lets go of the steering wheel. Well, if the inside guy puts a nut up and grabs his wheel before the outside front guy, it can turn the wheels. And so all of a sudden, this outside front guy, the axle is turned and cocked. It's not square looking at him. Um, there's all kinds of different stuff that that happens in the pit lane that you don't think about that uh, doesn't meet the eye. It's there's a there's a lot that goes into making a pit stop and uh those guys are they're they're just tremendous at what they do and they're under the gun and, and you got to realize there's cars coming like if you're an outside tire changer on the rear the guy behind you in the pit if he leaves first he's driving with, i got run over in the pits in australia one year a guy coming in the pits i was the outside front guy he ran over my uh he ran over my right leg uh turning mm -hmm. into his pit <laughs> And I was lucky I didn't break anything, but it did nerve damage. But anyway, you don't think about stuff like that. Cars going in and out, it's it's chaos. And, uh, you know, the better shape you're in, obviously, physically, uh, you know, the better off you're going to be to be able to do your job. But those guys that do those pit stops, it's uh, my hat goes off to them still. Now, how, how many races do you normally have in an IndyCar season? Well, they usually have like 16 or 18 races. Um, we, I mean, there was years when we got up around 20 and, uh, when I was doing it, we go to Australia every year. Um, we raced in Japan, we raced in Brazil, we went to Europe and raced in Belgium. Uh, we raced in, uh, we raced in, uh, Germany. We raced in England. Uh, we raced a, a lot all over the world. And we raced in Canada and Mexico, not just the United States. So, I mean, if you Australia for me was was always the tough one, and it was always harder coming back the the time. So, I mean, it's those guys that work on those cars, not just the drivers and everything, but the guys that do the work on those cars uh, and got to go in those time zones and do that. I mean, Australia when I was doing it was seventeen hours the next day from. Like if, if it was seven in the morning in Australia, uh, it was three o'clock in the afternoon in Indianapolis. So it was, uh, it was, it's very challenging uh, to, you're, you're tired a lot when you do it. <laughs> and when you're tired, you're, you have more, there's more of a tendency, I hate to say it, but there's more of a tendency to make mistakes when you're tired. Uh, I'll bet that's the case with anything, I think. So that's okay. What, what do you think uh, when you look back at your, your lengthy career, uh, what do you think is the, the pinnacle moment of, of your career? If you, if you have that one moment that you, you know, you sit up on stage and you're going to reminisce about what's that one moment that uh, still makes your heart pound a little bit. Well, I got to say, um, well, we talked earlier about my family and everything and, and Joe was there too when this happened. But uh, when Michael Andretti won the championship in 1991, he won the IndyCar championship. Uh, 
my mom and my sisters were there with me. Um, Joe was there. Uh, my aunt and uncle, my dad's little sister was there. My dad passed away when I was 14, but his sister was there that day. And uh, just to come from, I didn't come from a racing family and it was tough for me. And my mom didn't really understand it. And she was hard on me when I was younger. She wanted me to get an education. And I kept going to college and quitting because I wanted to race. And uh, so for my family to be there when Mike won the championship at Laguna Seca in 1991, uh, it, was, it was just a tremendous, tremendous feeling for me to have my family there with me when that happened. So I'd have to say that's, <laughs> that's not the greatest thrill or accomplishment in my life. It's right at the top. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll bet. Okay, so here's a, one last question that I have for you. Now, what would you say to you're you're who you are now? You you know the great veteran of IndyCar racing that you are, and you have 15 year old Tim that's hitchhiking, going to wants to get involved in IndyCar racing. What's your what's your advice for young Tim? Play golf, <laughs> <laughs> Darren. Darren, if you got a passion for what you do, you'll figure out there's a way. I'm not saying I'm great or what I did, but I really enjoyed it and loved racing. And it were some tough times in my life, uh, you know, struggling to get by. Uh, you know, before I got into working full-time on Indy cars, I went on the dirt track circuits and I was working, I was working for some good drivers and stuff, but I, I was working for cheeseburgers and t-shirts and they'd buy me a pit pass. And, uh, and I loved every moment of that, but it was a struggle to get by. So where there's a will, there's a way. And I just loved racing. And there's a lot of people out there today that love racing. And I, I would just say, if you love it, pursue your dreams. And, uh, you know, if you put your nose to the grindstone and show people that you care, people are going to help you. Racing people got big hearts. They really do. I mean, racing people, you'll watch guys at the local track, sprint car, go out there and bang wheels and battle wheel to wheel and, and heated competition. And if a guy needs a spare part or needs help on the car, they'll be that your competitor will be the first to first to help you. Racers are special people and I'm proud to be one. And, um, I, it, it, I've had a great life because of racing and, uh, I, I'm just, I, I, I don't know what to say. Racing is, was, is my life and, and I'm proud that I was and, I'd recommend it to anybody. It's not easy and you got to love it. But if it's what you want to do, there's, there's no more, like you asked me, my, my thrills and the, I, there's nothing I could dream that I had a great life and, uh, and it was all because of racing. Wow. Tre tremendous. Uh, Joe, before we go up, do you have any uh, final questions for Tim or, or comments? You know, you know, I enjoyed listening to you two professionals go back and forth here, and I learned quite a bit. I just was going to ask Tim one, one final thing. You've met so many personalities over the years, so many stories you've had. Is there one individual in IndyCar racing that stands out to you, whether he's here now or around now, that you might have remembered fondly and one night would tell a story about him? Oh, boy. Uh you know, the one guy that I would say that people, I, people know he had a big heart, but I'd like to say something about Paul Newman. Mm. Uh, Paul Newman loved racing, and he loved to go to the races. He was a part owner in our team, and, uh, you know, he, was, he had two passions in life. He had the hole-in-the-wall camps for the terminally ill kids, and, uh, and he loved his race team. And I mean, he was a behind the scenes guy. You never saw him in the middle of arguing with engineers or whatever. Him and Carl, they handled the bills. And, but the one, one story I'll tell you about him, I'll never forget. He used, to, he used to bring kids, he had his own plane and he'd bring into the tent when we'd be working on the road or the garage, wherever we were working at, he would bring these kids in and a lot of them would be bald because they were on chemo. And he'd have Paul love popcorn. He'd walk in with a bag of popcorn. He'd have five or six little kids with him. And he, one day I was in the back of the car uh, working by myself. And he walked up to me and he said, is that spare car over there? The other car sitting there. Uh, I said, yeah. And he goes, can I, 
you mind if I would set, you know, these kids would get a kick out of sitting in this, that car. I said, you own it. You don't have to ask me, <laughs> but that's the kind of guy he was. And uh, I was so proud to work there at Newman Hospital for 23 years for Carl and Bernie Hoss and Paul Newman. And that's the kind of, uh, that I would just like to share that story about him. You know, people know him as a famous actor and all that, but he was a great human being. And it was a great time in my life. And uh, like I said, I owe it all to racing. Yeah, I, I love his salad dressing too. I still still eat it. But uh, he didn't he yeah. he actually he actually raced in some races. He was he? a he was a really good race car driver. He once he didn't start racing until he made that movie Winning in 1968, which would have meant he he didn't start until he was like 45 years old, and he raced until. I'll never forget a guy asked him, he raced a Corvette at Lime Rock, Connecticut when he was like 80. And a guy asked him, he says, uh, how does it feel to uh, be racing at 80? Newman says, he was getting ready to drive away. And he goes, I'll, he goes, I've never done it before. I'll tell you when I get back. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that, those are tremendous stories. I'm, I'm glad you shared with uh, Mr. Newman and uh, all, all your racing uh prowess and uh, experience that you've had and uh, you know i want to thank uh, joe and tim both of you for coming on the sports jersey dispatch day and uh, educating me and the listeners on some uh, great auto car auto racing in the indy car world and uh, i thank you for that darren been my pleasure and thank you very much for having me thank you joe oh thank you tim thanks darren for having me on as well i appreciate it Sorry, but my pitching coach just called timeout, and he's coming out to the mound. I think I'm going to get yanked for a reliever. We'll see you back tomorrow for some more great sports history on Sports Jersey Dispatch Podcast. We invite you to check out our websites, jerseydispatch.com and pigskindispatch.com. Not only see the daily sports history, but to experience the preservation of great events and people that play the games. Find us on Pigskin Dispatch. It's also on social media outlets of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel. Get all your daily sports history. Pigskin Dispatch is happy to be associated with the Sports History Network, the sports headquarters of yesteryear, found at sportshistorynetwork.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.